0: We are back in the book of Judges once again today. We've been working through the book of Judges, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, discovering what it is that, that God has intended us to learn and understand and embrace from this book. And as we have moved through, we have seen, we've come face to face with our own depravity, our the own, the own sinful condition of our hearts. That's what the author of the book of Judges wants us to see is that this is what happens, this is what happens to society, this is what happens to our own lives when we live a life that is in rejection of the King of Kings. And as we continue to move through, we continue to see that as we find a series of negotiations that occur in our text. Today. We are going to be in the, in the end of Judges chapter 10, and I'm just going to warn you right now, this may be a long sermon that today as we seek to try to get all the way through the end of chapter 12. I do so only because that this story is presented as a, as a unit, as a whole, and so we want to we catch the, the big arc of what is happening, the, the story arc it as, as it develops. We want to see the whole thing as it unfolds, and so we want to catch the whole life of Jephthah and the cycle of as it continues on. As we have moved through this book, we have seen the increasing canonization of the people of Israel. The judges continue to get worse and worse as they move through the book. And we see the continued downfall of the people. Let's pick things up in Judges chapter ten, verse seventeen. Well, before I do that, you know, let me just set the stage a little bit more. What we're going to see today is a series of negotiations. In many ways, all of life is based on our ability to negotiate, though that may be a little bit less true today than it once was. We, we expect our government to negotiate trade deals, peace treaties, etc. Our, our local governments might negotiate with businesses, nonprofits, etc. for various matters. Just not too long ago, Amazon was opening up a a second headquarters and they were negotiating with a bunch of cities to find where they would have the best location for them. Businesses negotiate with employees. Employees negotiate with businesses. Individuals negotiate with each other on the sale of perhaps things like used vehicles or other goods. You just go on Facebook Marketplace and there's just about everything there is negotiated as far as the final purchase price. Sometimes we even use the phrase, we are negotiating our way through life. It's an expression that refers to the idea that you're just doing the best you can to make it through life in the best way possible. On its own, negotiations aren't sinful. Many characters in the Scriptures negotiated, including Abraham himself and with, with God himself, Problems arise, however, when we negotiate for the wrong things, or we re- even if we negotiate the right things for the wrong reasons, or even if, we, if you want to give a good thing, if you want a good thing for a good reason, but you're willing to give up something you shouldn't in order to get it. Our passage today is full of negotiations as the author of Judges presents them to us, these are the actions of men who have abandoned their king and result are left drifting and grasping at things beyond their reach. God is still gracious in the midst of all of these things. He is not presented as, as taking a, so much of an active role as He took in previous judge cycles. But here we have the actions of men. But, and God's graciousness depends... Not on their efforts, but rather on God's graciousness in the midst of all these things. But we find Jephthah making negotiations without godly motivations. And as we see, negotiations made without godly motivations will always end in disaster. It may not be in this life, but we will have to give an account. And in that day, there will be no negotiating our way out of anything. Recall that as we, we are coming out of a section where Israel has sought to get God to free her from the Ammonites, God tells, essentially tells the Israelites to, to go fly a kite, essentially. They say, oh yes, please save us. But God says, no, I've saved you so many times before. I'm not going to save you anymore. You keep going after foreign gods. Well, let, let those foreign gods save you. The people seek to manipulate the Lord, but ultimately they do not rest upon His deliverance. And this is evident with our first major heading today where the people seek to negotiate Salvation, not with God, but with anyone who would be willing to rise up to save them. I just want to pause and ask for a minute, is is that with about her dad? Okay. I'm just going to pause... For a moment, and just pray for for Angie for her dad. Um, of course, Angie's dad has been in declining health for for a while now, um, so we want to want to pray for her right now. Father, we do pray for Angie and her family. although though it's though we knew that his his. Health was declining. We, we just do. It, it's never easy, Lord, to lose those that we love. Lord, I just do pray for them now. I pray for Dennis that he would finish well. I pray for Debbie. Lord, I just pray that you would strengthen her as she stands by her husband's side as as his life draws to an end. I pray for Angie. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen her. I pray that you would encourage her. I pray, Lord, that you would give her the strength for this difficult moment. Lord, I thank you for the testimony of faith in Jesus Christ that her dad does possess and expresses. I thank you that we know that because of his belief in Jesus Christ that he will be with you. That there is no fear of death that needs to happen. But there is still loss. So though we grieve as those, not as those who do not have hope, we grieve as those who do have hope, Lord, we still grieve. And I do pray for Angie and her whole family. And I just do pray this, all of this, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pick things up in Judges chapter 10. The end of chapter 10, again, after the Israelites have sought to negotiate with God and failed, they seek to negotiate with people from amongst their own countrymen. Negotiating salvation, chapter 10, verse 17, Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead, and the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over the inhabitants of Gilead. Here we see the people offering kingship to anyone who would lead them and save them from their peril. And how many times have we seen this play out in history? People become desperate, and so desperate, they're they're willing to go after any leader who seems to be able to offer to them freedom or relief that they desire. Not only can nations do this in their moment of distress, and, and oftentimes this ends in disaster when the leader that they, that they select, that they choose, ends up being someone who is, is wicked and it ends in their own ruin, but this can even occur even amongst things like, like churches when selecting a pastor. Churches can be looking for a charismatic leader, and I don't mean theologically charismatic, but just his personality, rather than a godly man who displays a high degree of moral character. God knew that there would come a time when Israel would seek out a king. In fact, He even made provision in His law for what that king would look like. And it was not just to be anyone who, would, who could deliver the people. It's not just whoever would be able to raise up and lead a military campaign. No, it had to be someone who would acknowledge the Lord and obey His word. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 17 verses 18 through 20 that gives the instructions for how Israel was to think about a king. This is referring to that king, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests and it shall be with him and he shall read it in all the days of his life. That he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. This is what the king was to do. This is what the leaders were to do, that, that Israel should have sought someone that, that desired to, to follow the word of the Lord. But rather they sought to negotiate, oh hey, you know what, if you can just deliver us from our peril, that will be enough for us. We will make you our king. This passage from Deuteronomy will be instructed for, instructive for us as we continue to move through this passage. And as we come into chapter 11, the scene shifts from the, the people of Israel, it shifts to Jephthah, it provides some background information on the man that is relevant to the unfolding of the story, as the narrator tells the story of how Jephthah comes to power as he negotiates his own leadership. Verse, chapter 11, verse 1, now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. Now, Gilead was likely named after the, the tribal leader as a namesake of sorts. So we have Gilead as a region, and then we have this individual who was named after the, 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 the patriarch several generations ago. So uh, let's not confuse the region of Gilead with Jephthah's father, whose name was also Gilead. In many ways, Jeff's story is going to mirror the story in the life of Abimelech that we saw in previous weeks. Both were children of women who were not the wife of the father. One was a concubine, the other is from a prostitute. Both men gather about themselves, the text says, worthless fellows. Both gain power, not for the sake of the people, but for their own selfish agendas. But as we continued to read on, this negotiations take place over how he comes to power. Verse four. After a time the Ammonites made war against Israel, and when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob and they said to Jephthah, "Come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, "Did you not hate me?" and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? It's almost a, a mocking response. Like, what are you guys doing here? Like, you, you, you cast me out, and now you want me to help you. Verse 8, the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, This is why we have turned to you now, that, we may, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and, and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord be a witness between us, if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. So we have here Jephthah being you know, rightfully skeptical of the people. I mean, why would you come to me after you've already driven me out, right? He, he, he requires that, that they would give some level of assurance that they may make an oath with him that, yes, you are going to do what you claim to do. Here we see them even invoking the name of the Lord. The Lord will be a witness here. You know, as we move through this and notice the details of this text, there's very little of the direct acts of the work of God in the midst of this. And for the most part, his name is invoked as a witness, as a, as a passive observer of the events that are unfolding. But his active work is limited in this passage. And that, that speaks to the, the human element in the midst of this. As these, these individuals, they're trying to negotiate their way through life, they're trying to figure things out, but they're not coming before the Lord and seeking His guidance. They're trying to work it out amongst themselves. And God is called merely to be a witness. Rather than submit to the Lord as King, they use His name to accomplish their own agendas. We do this, don't we, do we not? We, there, there's, there's phrases I people use trying to make a promise. They'll say something like, Oh yes, I, I swear to God, Right? We need to be very careful with how we do those things. If we're not going to seek the Lord and His guidance in the midst of things, and yet we're going to invoke His name to give assurances of our promises, we need to be very careful with how we approach those things. Jephthah assumes commands. And his first act seems to be he, he gets on the hotline with the king of Ammon in order to negotiate a peace settlement. That is, first order of business. And so we have what unfolds before us. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, this is verse 12, What do you have against me that you may come to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably." Well, it seems as though Ammon is trying to correct a wrong here. He's like, hey, you you took our land, and now it's time for you to give it back. That's our land. The trouble is, it was never actually theirs. As Jephthah, he's about to demonstrate, and it's actually corroborated by some historical and archaeological evidence that we have, Ammon never possessed this land. They are making a false claim upon that land claiming that it once was theirs. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read all of the events that follows because it's, there's a lengthy passage here. Verses 14 through 28, I encourage you at some time in your own, you can read through that passage on your own. However, there are certain observations that I would like to make from this text as Jephthah, what follows is him giving a defense for why Ammon ought not to be doing this thing. And by all accounts, Jephthah deserves credit here. Jephthah does a a masterful job of crafting an argument for why Ammon should leave Israel alone. And we see as he unfolds his argument that he really knows his history. He knows his history. He knows what has actually transpired in the past. He knows the details about the geopolitical landscape of the day of when that Ammon is making reference to. And he makes several arguments in the midst of this. First, I want us to to pay attention. As you do read through this, make sure you are able to make a distinction between the people of the Ammonites and the people of the Amorites. Amorites. Those are two different people groups. If you're not careful and you're just reading quickly, you can get them mixed up. I know because I did that myself the first time I read this. I was confused because I was not paying close enough attention to that detail. But Jeth's argument, he makes a historical argument. First, he says that land wasn't yours. It didn't belong to the Ammonites. It belonged to the Amorites. Second, he makes a theological argument. We tried to pass peaceably through the land, the Amorites came up in war against us, and we defeated them in war, and therefore the Lord gave us that land. God gave us this land, who are you to try to take it from us? He makes a chronological argument, if this land was yours, then why have you not tried to take it back in all these 300 years. You've had the opportunity for 300 years to try to lay claim to this, and you've not done so. Evidence that it is not actually your land. And he concludes his argument by once again invoking the name of the Lord to serve as a judge and a witness between them. By all accounts, this is a well-crafted and a well-done defense by Jephthah as he engages with the king of Ammon. In fact, it is so well done that as we're about to see in a moment, it's actually going to serve as a stark contrast to what is absent as we come to the climax of the story in a few verses. For all his efforts, however, it was ineffective to get the king of Ammon to back down, and war was looming. And so now we see Jephthah move from seeking to negotiate peace to negotiate peace Victory, not with Ammon, but with the Lord. Let's pick things up in verse 29. Judges 12, verse 29. This next section contains the only two mentions of God's direct involvement in an active rather than passive way. And even so, it's almost in passing as if it doesn't seem to be central to the story. But verse 29, we see, Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and he passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. We aren't told specifically in this verse why it is that he's passing through these regions, but the last time we saw something similar to this was the life of Gideon, when Gideon was clothed with the Spirit of God, and he passed through the regions. The purpose of that was to Rally the troops. Hey, we're going out to war. We need to to gather ourselves together for this battle. And so it seems best to understand that such is the same thing happening here. It's not clear if Jephthah was even aware of the Spirit's involvement here, but the Spirit was involved in calling out the people to go before the Ammonites in war. But even though, even though Jephthah has invoked the name of the Lord. Even though he is clothed with the the Spirit of God here in our text, he still does not seem to be confident of victory. And so, being the negotiator that he is, he has negotiated his leadership over Israel. He has negotiated, sought to negotiate a peace treaty with the Ammonites, and that failed. Now he's going to continue his negotiating patterns. This time it is with, The Lord, verse 30. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Ar-Eor... To the neighborhood of Minith, twelve cities, and as far as Abel Keremim, with a great blow, so the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Jephthah makes this vow, this promise to the Lord: "Lord, if you will do this for me, then I will do this for you." There's no response recorded from the Lord, but the offer is made. Whatever comes out of my house, I will sacrifice. Scholars debate a little bit about Jephthah's intent here. Some argue that he was quite aware that this might cost him one of his own children, and that he was willing to make that sacrifice. After all, the canonization of the judges continues. Others argue that perhaps he was not thinking of his children, but in those days, the the, the farm animals that were owned by the people at that time would even live within the courtyard of the house. And so as you, as you come home and as you make noise, as you're coming up the lane or whatever, the, the, the animals might come out to greet you. So whatever animal, maybe that was a cow, maybe that was a sheep or a goat or a chicken, or whatever farm animal would come out, he would sacrifice that to the Lord. Seeking to negotiate with God. Sometimes we can, we can do this, can't we? There's something that we want, and we're so desperate for it uh, that we're willing to overpromise or to overpay in order to get it, only to wish that we hadn't made that promise on the back end. We end up with buyer's remorse in a way. I don't know if any of you have attempted to negotiate something with God. I know for my part that I have. I have tried to do that. God, if you will do such and such for me, then I will do this and that for you. I remember this is a little bit of a, perhaps a trite example, but I remember early in my Bible college days, I was faced with a test that I did not study sufficiently for, trying to negotiate with God, Lord, if you will help me on this test, then I will, and I I don't know exactly what it was that I promised the Lord I would do, but I made that promise. Even though I hadn't studied, I still valued the things that good grades brought into my life, and so I was willing to offer something to the Lord, Lord, please, and trying to make that negotiation. Other times, there might be something else that we want so badly that we're willing to to make a promise, Lord, if you'll just get me this job, or if you'll just bring this other blessing into my life, or if you'll just take this unpleasant thing out of my life, then, then I will do something. I promise I'll be in church. I promise I'll I'll read your word every day. I promise I'll I'll pray to you every single day. We're trying to negotiate with God. What does this betray? Do we trust God enough to allow Him to work by His divine providence everything together for our good and His glory? Are we willing to receive the consequences even of our own actions from His hands knowing that it is through these painful consequences at times that God teaches us and instructs us? If we are His children, God has promised that He will only bring good things into our lives. Now there are things that don't feel pleasant, so how do we reconcile this together? God's Word teaches us that God works all things together for good to those who love Him. So even though there are things that we go through in this life that are challenging and even painful at times, do we trust that God is doing exactly what He said He would do in working things together for our good and His glory? Or by our negotiations, do we think that we could earn the blessing of God by essentially bribing Him to do what we want, as if He needed anything from us? God doesn't need anything from us. God doesn't need whatever animal that, that Jephthah thinks he's going to sacrifice. God doesn't need that. When we try to negotiate things with the Lord, we, we, we stand upon very shaky ground. Presumptuous ground. As if we can bribe God into blessing us in the way that we think is best for us. Well, Jephthah made his vow, and he ended up winning the day. So on, on first glance, we may have to ask the question, okay, does this mean that God honored his vow? He made this vow. He made this promise. He negotiated with the Lord. Was, was he successful in that? Did, did God honor this vow? Well, we need to be careful not to get too far ahead of ourselves. The fact that God gave Ammon into Jethro's hand is true, but, but the text almost presents it as a detail that almost gets glossed over. It's almost as if the author is acknowledging, yes, in God's sovereignty over the matters, he, he has orchestrated these things, but it doesn't necessarily draw direct attention to the direct work of God itself. God graciously handed them into the hands of Jephthah, but his involvement is not to the level that it has been at other points within this book. And as we read on, we find more reason to doubt that God has granted victory on account of the vow. God has granted victory, but it wasn't because of Jephthah. Verse 34, this is where the story begins to get dark. Then Jephthah came out of his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. The text emphasizes this point. This was his only, his only child. There's nobody else that would have carried on the family name. There's nobody else. This was his daughter whom he loved. Verse 35, and as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down and on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. And so he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, her and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known any man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. Jephthah was a man without much heritage. He was cast out by his family. Now because of his rash promise... There will be no family line continuing on as he kills his own daughter for the sake of a promise that he made. This is one of the saddest portions of the book. Jephthah expecting an animal is devastated by his daughter's appearance. And all that she, was, she, all that she was doing was celebrating her father's victory. And for that, she dies. There are some scholars that debate what is actually happening here. There are some that want to try to soften this passage and say, well, you know, maybe he didn't actually sacrifice her as a burnt offering. Maybe he just dedicated to the, to her to the Lord and she just served yeah, like the tabernacle or something of that nature. But the text does not present it that way. The text says that he did just as he had vowed, and what he vowed was to offer as a burnt offering. Child sacrifice. This should sicken us, this should repulse us. This ought to enrage us. I mean, what are you doing, Jephthah? This is your own flesh and blood. Why are you burning her on an altar? We praised Jephthah earlier for knowing his history and the geopolitical landscape of of things and, and providing this skilled defense to Ammon. But when it comes to this matter, he failed. Because he fails to know the word of God. The law of God had provision for how to deal with rash vows such as this. And I'm going to read, this is Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 5, verses 4 through 6 says this, If anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear and it is hidden from him, when when he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt in any of these, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin that he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord, as his compensation for the sin that he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat, for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. Jephthah didn't have to sacrifice his daughter. It did not have to happen. In fact, child sacrifice is explicitly and expressly forbidden by the Word of God. He says, no, you shall not do these things. It is detestable in my sight. God hates child sacrifice. And the law made provision for if, if you made some kind of rash oath, if you made some kind of promise that then now you realize that you cannot or should not keep, there's a way out and in keeping with the law of God. But either he didn't know the law or he disregarded it. In either case, here's a man who does the unthinkable. He does only what the Canaanites do. Sacrifices his own child. Though he secures military victory, Jephthah's negotiations cost him dearly. Sadly, we aren't quite done with Jephthah's story. If you would bear with me for just a few moments longer as we just look at seven more verses concluding the life of Jephthah from chapter 12. It seems that Jephthah could hardly properly grieve and mourn his daughter because another crisis arises. Chapter 12, verse 1, the men of Ephraim were called to arms, they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. Strong statements from the Ephraimites. Well, if you recall, this is following a pattern that we saw before with the life of Gideon, as, as Gideon had gone to war and the, the Ephraimites were not called out and they were going to be engaged in conflict. Once again, I invite you to read this, this passage for yourself in the, in the course of your own reading. For the sake of time, I'm just going to make a few observations as we continue to seek to wind down our time here this morning. again, This man is a man of negotiation, right? He seeks to negotiate his way through all of these things. Gideon was able to successfully negotiate with the Ephraimites who are out for blood. Jephthah now, though, is unsuccessful. Jephthah is going to claim that he did try to call them out, but they refused. Scripture doesn't record that account for us, and so we're left to wonder whether he's making this whole thing up or if he is actually being truthful Whatever the case may be, where Gideon's approach was one of flattery, an attempt to de-escalate things, Jephthah was defensive and aggressive, and the result is ultimately civil war. Jephthah may have delivered Israel from external threats, but now the nation is crumbling from within as they go to war, and 42,000 men of Ephraim fall by the sword. Notice the concluding verse in verse 7. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. Six years. This is the shortest of the cycles, though it was an eventful cycle. He judged, he died, and he was buried. No mention of rest. No mention of God's work, he judged, he died, he was buried. Such was the life of the one who sought to negotiate his way through life, paying little more than lip service unto the Lord. How do we think about the life of Jephthah? How do we think about this cycle? Just a few concluding remarks as we conclude our time this morning. As I mentioned last week, the author wants to continue to stare for us, to continue to stare in the face of our own depravity, of what it looks like when we forsake the king of kings and we seek to negotiate our way through life without account to the Lord. Where does that leave us? Jephthah was motivated by his own agenda to secure for himself the kingship in Israel. He negotiated his way through life. He was even willing to invoke the name of the Lord but ultimately doing that which was despicable in his sight because he failed to know the law of God and the Lord's character. If he knew his God, this never would have happened. Friends, life does not have to be lived this way. We don't have to negotiate our way through life seeking to live life with our own selfish agendas. And we especially We especially don't have to try to negotiate our standing with the Lord as a means of trying to curry His favor with us. We we don't have to live life that way. It doesn't have to be like that. Friends, if you are in Christ, there's nothing more to negotiate. It's been done. Christ has, has paid the penalty on the cross for us. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, there is nothing more to be done. Romans talks about how we are adopted into the family of God by whom we, we cry out, Abba, Father, because of the Spirit's work within our life. So we are children of God, those who have believed in Him. Jesus Himself said that, that, which of you, if you ask your father for a stone, that the Father gives him like, or rather ask for a fish or bread, that He gives him a stone or a serpent instead? How much more so will the Heavenly Father give good gifts to His children? We do not have to seek to negotiate favor, negotiate blessings from God. If we are His children, He gives us only blessings, including that which is challenging for us to live out. So the the question comes down to, do we have faith? in the character, and in the promises of God? Do we believe that when God says, I will work all things together for your good and my glory, including the challenging times, do we believe that's true? There is therefore now no condemnation to those in Christ, to to Him In Him we have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. If God is for us, who can be against us? When we see that we can step forward in faith knowing that whatever comes, all of this is a gift from His sovereign hand and He works all things together for our good and His glory. And so we are called to rest in Him. Today. Let's pray. Father, this is truly a, a challenging text in many ways as we see the, the despicable nature of what Jephthah concluded that he had to do, all because he failed to know your word, he failed to know your character, he failed to honor you in his life. And yet, Lord, we see how you have used him for your purposes, even in the midst of Israel. And he even stands in the book of Hebrews in the hall of faith as a man who by faith conquered foreign enemies. Father, I pray that we would be a people of faith. I pray, Lord, that we would trust you, that as your children, that we would know that we don't have to negotiate our way through life, that we don't have to try to earn or, or curry favor with you by offering up some some platitudes or some some bribery trying to get you to act to bless us. Lord, you only bless us even if that blessing comes in the form of discipline. Even if that blessing comes in the form of Hardship and trial and tribulation, because it is through those things that you shape our character. Give us the faith to trust you that that is true. Give us the confidence that, that we can be resting in you. Bolster our faith today. Help us to rejoice and rest in you. Pray that all this in Jesus' name. Amen.